Thanks, Natalie. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Auckland EV. My name is Rowan. I want to add my welcome uh, to Lachlan's. Um, it is great, isn't it, to come and hear God's Word, to hear what's happened in history and to think through how this affects us. That's going to be really important today as we work through this passage to think about history. So why don't we pray that God will help us to understand what has gone on uh, throughout His history. Let's pray. Lord, you know where we are, where we are today. You know what's been going on in our lives, the ups and downs of life, the frustrations that we face, uh, the, the struggles that we go through, the highlights and, and the hardship. We ask that as we hear the way you've acted throughout history and as we understand this news about Jesus today, that you lift our eyes to what matters. That by your Spirit and through this Word, you might send us away today from hearing you speak changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, when I was at school, I hated history. History was one of those subjects that whenever it was like time for history class, I was like, oh, how can I get out of this? Like, I just hated it. My kind of view of history was, what's the point in knowing what happened in the past? You can't change it. Like, why do we spend our time looking at the past when we've got the future to live for? And I was like really frustrated at history. Uh, over the years, I've learned that history helps you learn from your mistakes, which I didn't understand as a school uh, student, nor as a 20-year-old. I'm maybe in the end of my 30s now, still trying to come to grasps with that. We need to learn from our mistakes. And if we don't look at history, we can't learn. But history isn't just about learning from our mistakes. History matters when it comes to relationships. I don't know if you've thought of that. If you're ever thinking about someone that you might want to be friends with or choosing a business partner or maybe thinking of dating someone, if you're not already married, just saying, although you should date your spouse, that's a great thing to do, you want to think about the history of that person. You want to think about the way they've acted. Now, sure, we all change and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but psychologists tell us that the best predictor of future behavior is present behavior. And our present behavior is shaped by our behavior in the past. Has this person that I'm looking at, at kind of sharing my life with, whether in business or just as a friend, as I, as I look to share my thoughts and life, do they have a trustworthy history? Do they keep their word? Or will their walk match their talk? Has it matched their talk? Now, that's why if you're thinking of marrying someone again and you're not already married, it's great to, to have at least known them for two years, to have seen the ups and downs of, of, of life, to have walked through life, to see what they're like rather than just jump in. Now, you could just jump in, arranged marriages work. But I think there's wisdom in looking at history. History matters because it evidences the character of its characters. It evidences the character of of its characters. And really, we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at the God of history and how his spirit sends us out. So there's two pages, God of history, page one, second page, um, how the spirit sends us out. So we'll, we'll come to those as we move through. The book of Acts, like the rest of the Bible, is filled with lots of events and characters. But ultimately, its main character is God. And what we're going to see today is ultimately all of history's main character is God. He is the key person in all of your stories and of mine. To view history uh, or life outside of God and His influence is to miss what's really real. It's to miss the point of the universe and the point of you and me. To put it simply, everything is about Him. 
See, all of us, we all think that life is about someone. Usually, it's one of two people, either me, ourselves, or God. See, either we set the rules to life and determine how I live. I think, yes, I'll do what I want to do because I want to do it, effectively making ourselves our own God, or we recognize that God sets the rules, that He is in control, that He he helps us and He aligns really what we should do in life. See, of all the religions in the world, of all the worldviews, Christianity is unique. It's the only one that's grounded in history. There's lots of worldviews that are kind of a philosophical way of living or a way of life or a state of being or a set of principles. But Christianity claims something happened in human history. More than something happened, God, through every single part of human history, was bringing about His plans and purposes. And the book of Acts outlines part of your history and mine. Uh, The history that is really real, the history that you and I would be crazy to ignore. But the explanation of the God behind and in and driving all of that history is what we get to see in this book of Acts. So come with me to Acts 13 and meet the God who is worth giving everything for. In Acts 13, verses 1 and 2, we meet five men. We're introduced to them, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manon and Saul. There's a big range there. They say uh, three different nationalities or races, perhaps. Uh, Simeon, uh, called Niger, it means black, and so he's probably from Africa at this point. You've got people from all over the world come together in this early, early church. We'd heard of Saul's dramatic conversion um, in uh, in Acts 9. We hear about that. Uh, From a Christian hater to a Christian preacher. The only logical reason for Paul to flip from killing Christians to moving into someone who's proclaiming this news of the new Christian church is that what he said happened actually happened. He met the risen Jesus. He was convinced he was God and that changed his life. Barnabas, we heard a few um, chapters earlier in Acts 4, was a great encouragement to the early Christian church. He was so convinced that Jesus was God that in Acts 4.36, he sold his fields and funded all this gospel work and said, I'm in. All in on Jesus. I'm so convinced because I think what Jesus has done is history. I think he has come and lived and died and risen again. In Acts 11, uh, verse 22, we heard that the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to support the growth of the kingdom. Listen to this, verse 22. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. He went to Tarsus, this is Barnabas, to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We hear here about Paul, who was Saul. He'd already been proclaiming the gospel. What we're about to see happen in Acts 13 is called his first missionary journey, but it's not. He'd already been in Antioch with Barnabas and actually sharing the gospel there for a year, teaching, and probably from Acts 9 to 13, that's where he's been. And so here's a kind of a picture of where things are on the screen. The gospel's gone out from Jerusalem, and you'll see it there, that little bit on this side. Antioch is where that green line crosses on this side over here, the Mediterranean Sea. That's Antioch in Syria, modern-day Syria today. This is history as we read it. 
It's just normal detail we're being seen. It's not the exaggerated story you'd find in myth or legend. It's just like they went here, went to this place, did this, did that. They're in Antioch. Let me show you the next map. You can see Antioch uh, there over on the left-hand side. It's in little little text. Uh, And let me show you what happens. So being sent out, verse 4, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. You can see that next bit that way. Uh, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus, the island in the middle of the Mediterranean, or side of the Mediterranean, just there. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. And this begins this next missionary journey of Paul. Uh, Then in in verse 14, they travel further. And they continue on their journey from Perga and reach to Pisidian Antioch. Now you're like, what? There's another Antioch, a different one. So if you look in the middle of the screen at the top, in that tiny little writing, it says there, Antioch. Uh, That's the other Antioch that they went to from Antioch in Syria. So there's there's two, helpful to know where they are. Uh, And again, the Bible is kind of narrating events and places that are real. And that matters. It matters that this stuff actually happened and these are real places. In verse 14, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. And so the Christian church, this news of Jesus spreads across the world from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're seeing exactly what God said would happen, happening. The Christian church spread by real people who are convinced of the real events of the first century. And we see a pattern in in the way that this happens as well. Uh, the Jews, they read the Bible and then someone preached. The Christian church, we hear, they, they come to a, a Jewish synagogue, they read from the Scriptures, then someone preaches. And that's why what we do today is we read from the Bible and we preach. We explain what is being said in God's Word. There's no secret magic going on or special patterns we need to do or special underwear people wear. It's true, there are some. Uh, not in this church. <laughs> uh, Mormons, if you want to check that out later. Um, it's true. Uh, there's no kind of magic that goes on. <laughs> it's actually just saying real events happened. This happened. Christianity is simple as that. Jesus came and lived and the news of Jesus spread. Paul talks about in his letter of the Romans when he's summarizing the Christian faith. In Romans 1, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This, that's the news about Jesus, life, death, resurrection and ascension. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. What's so great about Christianity is it's not some ideology. It's just events that happen that God has done. And that is the power, God's power for salvation. As we point people to the fact Jesus lived, Jesus died, He rose again, that He is the King. And we see them go to to the Jew first. Uh, As God's people, the Jews, the message was first for them. But it wasn't only for them. And we saw that in the vision Peter had a few chapters ago. And now we get to see what happens in verse 42. Let me show you this. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters following the Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts, I was going to call them devouts, let's put them in one. Uh, Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. You're like, this is great. People are going, yes, Jesus did really rise. This is exciting. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. 
Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary. Now listen to this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Because the gospel was always go to the, to the Jew first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the non-Jews. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvations to the end of the earth. The Jews reject the message. Not all, but a good number of them. And at that point, you kind of wonder, well, has something gone wrong? You know, has, has God not brought his own people in? The Jews were the ones that had, had David and had God with him and God spoke to them, had the Old Testament, they had God's word. But did you notice what Paul said? It was necessary to preach to the Jew first. But part of the plan, part of the plan of the God of history, who's in control of all things, was that the Jews would reject that message. Not all of them, but a large proportion. And that in doing that, it would bounce off the Jews and go out to the ends of the earth. As an aside, that's what Romans 9 to 11 is all about, if you want to have a look at it later. The Jews um, come to Christ, then some reject, and then that brings in more nations, and that makes the Jews jealous. And rather than a timeline in Romans 9 to 11, you get a cycle of Jews coming in, rejecting, Gentiles coming in, that makes the Jews jealous, they reject, and you kind of see more and more come in. I think that's what's going on up until today. But through this whole chapter... Luke's going to great lengths to show you and I one thing, that God is in control of history. That God is in control of history. He's in control of who accepts or rejects the message, of how everything happens. That might raise questions for you. And you know, happy to come and chat with me up the front later. If this brings up questions that God's in control of all things, there might be things that come up for you. How does how does Evil happen, and why is that in the world? There might be a whole heap of things there, but the point of this entire section that Luke is showing us is that God is in control of history, and that has massive implications for you and I and how we live. Come back to the top, and I'll show you what I mean. When we come to passages like this, and we read of people praying and fasting and worshipping God and the Holy Spirit speaking through people, our recent history has kind of shaped us as Christians by the charismatic movement. And we hear that well, you know, the reason that we don't see God powerfully working today amongst us is because we don't harness the power of the Spirit. We don't have God's Spirit amongst us. We need to pray and fast more. We need to look for the miraculous of God giving us a word of who to send out and how to do that. And then people come along and say, what we need is, is prophets and prophecies. We need to be in touch with the Spirit. We need to fast to make our prayers work because that's exactly what happened in Acts. But remember, Acts is descriptive of what's gone on. It's not prescriptive, like the doctor writing you a prescription saying, this is what you should do. Just like Jesus' death on the cross is not prescriptive, saying we all need to go and die on a cross. Although Jesus does say, take up your cross and follow me, but we can't die in the place of others. Jesus did. This is God working and seeing the church spread at the first time, going out to the nations, kind of like a a rock dropped in a a big pond. As you see, the splashes and the ripples go out from um, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're seeing God break through and as he does this. This is not prescriptive of what we ought to do, but descriptive of what went on. But we need to come to this part of the Bible, not with our own questions. Because if we do that, if we come going, well, how do we see this power of God work today? We, we distort what God is actually saying and doing. We need to hear what Luke is saying for us. So what's actually going on? Acts 13 verse 2. Well, as they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
I mean, is that something that we should expect? People worshipping and fasting and then God speaks through His Spirit or the Spirit speaks and says, send these people. What were they actually doing when this is going on? Luke tells us they were worshipping. Now, we have a whole heap of ideas that come into our head when we hear they were worshipping. You know, were they standing there singing some great songs, waving their arms in the air? Were they kind of in this amazing falling down before people uh, and, and, and praising God and somehow in some trance God spoke and revealed himself? There's a whole heap of things that can come into our minds. But is that what the Bible means by worship? And look at verse 3. After they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them. It's Paul and Barnabas. They sent them off. Now, what's interesting is that fasting and prayer regularly go together throughout the Bible. So we think through what this worship is, the idea is they were fasting, that is not eating. Uh, now, the idea of fasting is the idea to choose to pray instead of eating. Uh, it's to use the feeling of hunger to remind us of our dependence on God. In the same way I depend on food, so I depend on God to be in control. And so it can be a, a helpful tool for us as Christians to remind us to pray. Oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> That's right. I need food, but I need God even more. Why don't I now come back to prayer? It doesn't make our prayers more powerful. It doesn't kind of be like a super fast send button. It's like putting the urgent flag on an email that God will read it even more quickly because we've, we've fasted as we've sent it through to Him. It's not more likely that God will answer it with a yes. It's a tool for us so that we might depend on Him. And when it says worship and fasting, it's probably that they were praying and fasting because the two always go together in, in the Scriptures. And the word worship, there's actually three words that are translated worship that we use for worship today. One is to bow down before, uh, and it's not that word. It's not the word that's translated to, to bow down, to worship. Uh, another one is to show reverence or respect, and it's not that word either. The word that's translated worship here means service. They were serving the Lord and praying. They were, they were living for the Lord. It implies that they were acting rightly toward God, recognizing He was the King who required faithfulness and obedience from those who belonged to Him. They served the Lord. They served His plan. They were about what He was about. They served Him. So they were serving Him and praying and fasting to go, Lord, probably what was going on in their heads is they're thinking about the mission that God has sent them on. Because that's exactly what they do. And as the Holy Spirit prompts them, as He pushes them, they're like, yes, we need to keep seeing this gospel go out. So a few important questions here. Who sent Paul and Barnabas off? Just in your head, think through who did that in, in, in the Scriptures. Who was the one who sent them? Well, in verse 3, it says they did. And the they is talking about this early church, those, those five men that we talked about and maybe some others who were there. The leaders of the church who, who were gathered together, who sent Paul and Barnabas off. The Spirit worked through the conviction of the church leaders who thought it was right for the sake of God's mission to say, yes, let's go. The Spirit is, is applying the word of God that Jesus has spoken through the apostles and saying, yes, we want to send you out. So David Peterson, the New Testament commentator, says this. When Luke writes, the Holy Spirit said, he might mean the Spirit spoke publicly through one or more of the prophets in the church. However, it's also possible that a conviction about God's will and his present situation was given to each one present, as it happens in 8.29, 10.19 and 11.12. We're seeing that people are convicted by the Spirit to walk along with God's will and plan. The Spirit's charge for these leaders of the church was to acknowledge by their action what God had decided and revealed, that the gospel must go out and that they must send suitable people for the task 
And so they pray, they serve God, and they go, right, who will we send? And they make a decision and trust that God is in control. It's God's plan enacted through these leaders. The New Testament doesn't tell us to listen to a voice. No New Testament letters outline a method for hearing the Spirit speak. Here is what you should do in order to hear the Spirit speak. Or to... It's just heed the word of the apostles. What we also see is that the leader's decision is also the decision of the Spirit of God. It's just two working together. Verse 4 um, tells us they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So who sent them? The leaders sent them, but also the Holy Spirit sent them. I take it that the church gathered round and prayed for them. They prayed for wisdom and then they made a decision and said, yes, this seems right, this is good. Knowing the Spirit um, was to see the gospel go out to the nations, they sent Paul and Barnabas and said, giddy up, boys, prayed for them. Let's go. We've got to get on with this. Now, how did the Spirit tell them that? Could have been through the church leadership saying it's a good thing to do. Could have been a prophet who said, look, I have a word from God. Might have been writing on a wall. Could have been a booming voice. What does Luke tell us? How does Luke tell us the Spirit told them? The answer is he doesn't. Luke's not writing to say this is what we ought to do and what we need to look for to say, oh, yes, we're waiting for the Spirit's special voice in this. He goes, this is what the Spirit is saying. Go to the nations. But that's what a charismatic understanding of the Scriptures leads us to say. Keep in touch with the Spirit. Yes, try and discern what He's saying here and there when God has clearly proclaimed it through His Son and by His Word. Luke wants to show that in the ordinary thing of saying, here is the task, let's go. God stands behind it in His Spirit. That is God's Spirit working through His Word. Working out who and how isn't the task here. It's what the Spirit is prompting them to do. And that's the bigger picture Luke is showing us. Acts 1, Jesus said so clearly to the disciples. Acts 1 verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Great, power to do what? You know, where is it? What's this power? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does the Spirit want us to do today? To proclaim to the witness of the apostles. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That God is in control. That Jesus is King. That He lived and died and rose again. That He is the solution to all of our problems. And He's the King who is in charge of all that we need to worship with all of our lives. That's what it is to be spiritual. is to point to this one mission God has. And the Spirit at this point in Acts 13 is reminding them of that. If we come to the book of Acts looking for where we're missing out on the power of the Spirit for, for some amazing new thing... We're reading it all wrong. The Spirit is pointing us to mission, to claim who Jesus is and what He's done. That's what God is doing in His world. That's what He's been doing since the very beginning. And that's why Luke records the content of Paul's sermon at Antioch. That sermon we just read, the thing we just heard, as Natalie read out the whole lot. Because Paul shows what they did empowered by the Spirit. He shows the result of this Spirit-sent um, mission. And the result was that they told the world that God was in control of history and that all history points to Jesus. Have a look at Paul's sermon. Let's have a quick look through that. If you've got your Bibles there, it'll be helpful. I'm not going to go through every verse because there's lots of them. But I just want to run through and show you how God-centered this talk is. Verse 14, Paul says it was God, sorry, 17, it was God who chose Israel from all the people on the earth for his purposes. It was God who made the people great during their stay in Egypt. And it was God who led them out of Egypt with an 
uplifted arm. In other words, the history of Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus under the leadership of Moses was actually about God showing the world he is God. We hear in verse 18, it was God who bore with Israel in the wilderness as they rejected him and moaned and complained. He put up with them and didn't wipe them out. It was God, verse 19, who destroyed the seven nations they encountered as they entered Canaan. It was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Now, only the one who owned the land could give the land. So you're saying here, God is in control of everything. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist tells us, and everything in it. He's saying, this is the God of the universe. It was God, verse 20, who gave Israel judges to rescue his people. It was God who gave Israel their first king, Saul. Even when it wasn't the best thing for them, they whinged and complained. He showed them, but then he raised up David, in verse 21. A shepherd boy against all human expectations slays Goliath and points people to God being in control. And God leads his people. Why did he do all this? So the world could see that behind all human history is the one God. Paul then skips to their recent history as he, as he proclaims in this synagogue in verse 23, it was God who brought Israel a saviour, Jesus. It was God who brought Jesus to earth. It was God who brought Jesus to Israel. And not by any kind of immediate, impersonal force. He didn't just kind of go, oh, this is an accident that kind of flicked along. Verse 23 of chapter 13, it's on the screen. From David's descendants, as he promised, Paul says, God brought Israel the saviour, Jesus. As he promised. So often in life, we look at the world around us and we go, what is going on? We can't make sense of the events that are happening and the ups and downs. Why is this virus here? The setbacks that happen, the, the times we invite people to things and they don't come. The hardships, the sickness, the famine, the pain, the poverty. So much of this world does not seem to make sense. But Paul is saying it makes perfect sense to the God of the universe. Because he's bringing all things to point to Jesus. He's in control of every moment of the Jews' history, every moment of human history, working things so that people would see that Jesus is God. He has you here today. It's his plan that you would hear this message and recognize that he is God. The role of a spirit working in Paul was to declare to the world that God was in charge of human history and that human history was all about Jesus. This world is not a chaotic mess with no purpose, as the atheist would say. But it's planned, thought through centuries before, to point people to God. Do you know how comforting that is? To not only know that God is in control of history, but He's in control of the future as well, that Jesus will come back. And we put an end to mourning, sickness, crying and pain. That the old order of things will be done away with and that He will rule as King. Paul was like, can you not see, people, how great this God is? He's carried the Jews throughout this time. And Paul even goes one step further. Look at verse 26. Even Israel's rejection of Jesus and nailing him to the cross was part of God's plan. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, Jesus, or the sayings of the prophet that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many 
days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. This is part of God's plan. God said it. He promised it. 700 plus years before this happened. It's all working out according to God's plan. Every hammer blow of the nails through his wrist was the work of the Father in fulfillment of his promises. To show the world God's love and goodness and control and glory. Finally, verse 30, it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead. He conquered death. The point of Paul's sermon and why Luke records it for us is to show the world God is in control. Despite opposition, despite the way we think, human history is the story of God. And the role of the Spirit almost every time in the book of Acts is to embolden people to speak of the reality that God is behind everything. That He is working in human history to focus people on Jesus and to offer forgiveness. We no longer need to be in a relationship where we deserve God's anger and wrath for rejecting Him, for saying, oh look, I just want to run my life my way, for pretending to be God. But to experience the forgiveness that Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And he died in our place, and then he rose again, and that life he offers you and me. Look at verse 38. Therefore let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from, from the law of Moses. Throughout the Jewish life, they've been trying to live God's way. And what the law of Moses did time after time after time was show people that they weren't good enough for God. But Jesus comes, lives his perfect life, dies in our place and offers his life for mine. Power in the Christian life, in life in general, doesn't come from seeking the miraculous, the sign or the healing. But recognizing what God has done in human history, he's paid the penalty for our sin. He's offered life forever. Do you know how much of this life, how much this life will be compared to eternity? That will come for those who trust in Jesus, living forever and ever and ever. This life, the hardships, the ups and downs, yes, they're hard, it hurts. But it's like a blink of an eye compared to the eternity that has been offered. Power in the Christian life comes through recognizing that Jesus is God, that he died, that he rose again, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. And he has made it possible that we could call God our Father and the new creation our home. If you've not recognized that Jesus died for you, I want to plead with you today, come to him. Look at these claims of history. Look at what went on. This is not just an ideology. This is history. And trust him as he is before it's too late. And if you do trust in Jesus, if he is your king, let me ask you, are you allowing the spirit of God to do his powerful work in you? To speak in the world like Paul does. God is in control. These events, while it feels crazy, He is in control of and He is good and He's shown us He's good at the cross. That God raises up and brings down kings and kingdoms. That He brings all human history to its head. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, says Paul in Philippians 2. And that forgiveness is offered in His name. That's the power of God. That's the work of the Spirit. 
Let me pause for a second and ask you, what is your image of God? What is God like in your mind? How do you think of him? Is he the God that's trying to desperately fix up the problems of the world? Is he the God that's trying to help you live a little more fulfilled life in the here and now? Is he a God who's perhaps uninterested and distant, asleep at the wheel and kind of the world's going off the rails? Or is he the God that is perfectly in control of everything, bringing history to its head in Jesus? Acts 13 is showing us he isn't distant. He isn't uninterested in our problems. And I know sometimes it can feel that way, but that's because we miss the big picture. Because he's provided the ultimate solution. He hasn't chosen to heal all the sick right now, to evenly distribute all the wealth in the world, to make life easy and comfortable and nice right now. That's not what he's promised. That's not what his plan is. It's not what he's on about. And that ought not to be what we are on about. But I spend so much of my time thinking about, oh, that'd be a bit more comfortable. That'd be nice to do this. Wouldn't it be good if um, this didn't happen? And my prayers are based around often how life can be a little bit easier, a little bit better, a little bit more comfy. You could heal all the sick in the world. You could perform all the miracles that happen in Acts. You could see amazing signs, but unless people trust the message of what God has done in Jesus, everyone dies and faces God's judgment and will be condemned because we've rejected Him. Without the forgiveness of Jesus, that is what we need. At the start of Mark's gospel, there's, there's a man who's, who's a paralytic. He can't walk. His friends bring him to uh, a house near where Peter lives. Uh, and, and they drop him through the roof. He, he, he literally can't get in a massive crowd. Jesus is speaking. And it's obvious what the problem is. He, he, can't, he can't walk. He's, he's paralytic. He came in on a stretcher through the roof. As in, they made a hole in the roof and lowered him down. Jesus sees him. And says, your sins are forgiven. Everyone's like, what? Like, it's in my legs. Like, it's that moment from Donkey and Shrek. My legs, my legs. Like, my issue is that I can't walk. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your issue is that your relationship with God is broken. And your sins need forgiving. The biggest problem our world faces is our relationship with God. Because our track history is not good. Because we've rejected him. And we need that to be fixed, to be forgiven. And that only comes through Jesus. The thing God bled and died for was not to heal the world, but to forgive it. That his church might grow and the world see what is really real. That God is God, that he is in control. All of us have our stresses and frustrations in life. But what Luke does is record this episode so you and I today might get the big picture. That we might get recalibrated to what really matters. What the Spirit's been doing since the book of Acts, proclaiming the news of Jesus so God's kingdom might grow. And more and more people come to know Him before it's too late. And the way God chose to do that, the way He's chosen to bring about His plans and purposes, is through schmucks like us. (laughs) It's through broken and sinful people like us that he uses to proclaim the message. Why? Well, look at the world around us isn't going to go, wow, there are amazing powers you have to be able to do these things and, and share this message. They're going to go, it's got nothing to do with you and all to do with God who acted in history and who is alive today, bringing us through his word and by his spirit to his son. Acts thirteen forty eight. When the Gentiles heard this, the non-Jews, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life 
believed. God brings his people, the people he has chosen to himself, through the sending out of us to our neighbours, to our family, to our colleagues, to our friends, to the ends of the earth, as people who are emboldened by the Spirit to speak, God is in control. He is good. He has shown his love at the cross. Jesus is king. Come and trust him before it's too late. And what happened in history, verse 49 of chapter 13, is that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Friends, seeing the big picture, understanding what's happened in human history and where human history is going means you and I can spend our life on what matters, on what will last. We can use what God has made each of us and all the differences that we have with the different skills and gifts and passions and talents and resources to serve Him, to to be empowered by the Spirit, to speak of Him, to see people come to know Christ. You know, throughout the world right now, all sorts of executives are sitting down at tables across from bright, young, passionate men and women trying to say, hey, come and join this new startup. Come and join this company. We'll train you. We'll grow you. We'll make you the best people you can be. They're pitching their company values and their missions. You you can change the world. You can make lots of money. Come and be part of what we're doing. But The only thing that will change the world in any lasting way, anything beyond just a couple of hundred, a thousand years, but for eternity is the work of the Spirit and the Word of God bearing fruit in the hearts of people. The corporates and startups, they shouldn't be getting the best. They shouldn't be the centers for development in our world. It should be the local church that's developing and growing and encouraging us to go out, to proclaim the kingdom because we've got the best mission. We have the best outcome, forgiveness with God, life that lasts forever, calling God our Father and the new creation our home, our sins forgiven. What is better than that? We have a certain picture of the future. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, and the God who is in charge of every minute of human history will be in control of the future. So how will you use your life for the glory of God? How will you be bold and cooperate with God's Spirit in you if you trust Jesus to... Invite your friends to church to speak of the fact that God is in control of this world, to put your hand up to be trained in the the next set of our Generate courses or to to spend time in the Word to understand His Word and, and sort out questions that we have, to use your resources, your time, your energy, your money boldly for the kingdom like Barnabas did. I'm all in because Jesus is King. Come to our Going Deeper tomorrow as as we talk through why training up workers for the harvest and planting churches is is core for us as a church. Think through how do I get involved with who I am and what, what I am like and the skills and gifts God's given me. If you want to see the Spirit's work, live your life prayerfully and boldly for the God of history, enjoying His forgiveness, declaring His gospel and living for His glory. That's what the apostles did. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. And that saw the church explode and people standing in eternity forever because of the power of the news of history. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that as we sit here today, as we think through life and the ups and downs and the struggles, that you are in control of human history, that you have worked and bring your plans to fruition in Jesus, and that Jesus has come and died in our place and risen again. We are so thankful 
And we ask that you'd focus our eyes on him. That when the ups and downs of life keep getting harder, that you would fix our eyes on what really matters. That by your spirit, you'd embolden us to know the truth and proclaim the truth. And you might hold us trusting your son to the end. Lord, we long that every knee bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord before he returns. We know that might not be your plan, but Lord, we ask you would use us for the spread of your glory and fame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.